Welcome to the Alice in Wonderland podcast. So this is a place for our listeners to open their mind and let their sense of wonder, imagination, and most importantly, curiosity loose. So I'm your host, Georgia Alice, and today I'm joined by Chris Koch. Chris has an incredible story of resilience after his life changed dramatically on the 10th of June in 2010. So I'm not going to go any further into that because I think I'd love to hear from Chris um, his story. So first of all, welcome, Chris. Thank you, Georgia. Welcome. It's lovely to be with you. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time and being here. And I'm really super excited to get into your story of how your life changed and this story of resilience that I think we all can learn from. I'm actually absolutely certain we all can learn from your experience. So before we get into the nitty gritty, there is a question that I ask every one of my guests and I always start the podcast with this. This helps people get a bit of a sense of who you are and what you do with your life. So the question is, I want you to imagine that I'm a seven-year-old girl, Alice in Wonderland, and I'm bouncing through Wonderland and I bump into Chris. And I say, hey, Chris, who are you? What do you do in your life? What's, what is it about you? What's your story? How would you answer that to a seven-year-old girl? Well, I think I would answer it uh, this way. There are a series of experiences that happen to people. Why they happen or how they happen is probably not important. The reality is that they've happened. And when that does occur, you're faced with two options. You can be resilient from what, what, what that experience is bringing to you, which could be both traumatic, enjoyable, exciting, passionate, and all of those feelings. Or you can actually bed down and say, woe is me. Now, now this is not to be derogatory towards people that, that have difficulty coping with extraordinary challenges. But, you know, it's, it's more than a phrase that says a challenge is an opportunity. It may sound like a phrase but it is how you cope with what's occurred to you. And the best that I can do in the rest of my life is to um, assist people to um, take control of the challenges in, in, in a way that they can say, well, what, what was the learning? Because I deep down have a belief, Georgia, that, that things don't happen accidentally. I, I don't believe in coincidence. Uh, I think that you and I are speaking here today not by accident. That, that there is a particular reason, and that reason may not be obvious to anybody and need not be. But there may be people that will be listening to this podcast that may have created this through their own desire to, to, to be provided with some information, something. Uh, and we may never meet these people, but it matters not that the universe does these things. So um, what I would tell the seven-year-old is, you know, just enjoy every minute of it, um, and it's all there for a good reason. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. And I love that around, you know, taking the, there's this, there's this wonderful quote that I've come across and I have no idea who coined this quote, but it's um, take the hit as a gift. And that's something that's been come, becoming really quite relevant in my own life and the lives of people around me and the people that I work with. So what would your take be on that? You know, take the hit as a gift. You've sort of already covered that a little bit, but so what, what are some of the gifts that you've been given from, we haven't even gone into what your hit was yet, but what are some of the okay. gifts that you've, been, that you've been given through life through, you know, some of the hits you've had? Well, um, the biggest hit that anybody um, can receive, which is actually a gift, is, is, is the hit of saying, so you thought you knew what you had to do. You know, I, I, have, I have friends who are very religious. I'm not. I'm probably more spiritual than than uh, belong, belonging to a, a, a church, and and so what 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 I'm um, um, endeavouring to try to say say to people is, 
you know, if, if you want to make God laugh, if there is this overall spiritual being, then tell him your plans <laughs> because I'm sure it'd be hysterical. <laughs> so you think you know what you're going to do next. Now, life that we lead actually tells us that um, uh, we should make plans, you know, that we should. But if you're so attached to it that that disappointment is almost unbearable, then um, you're, you're going to be um, disappointed. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're going to be hurt, you know. And uh, and if therefore you're resilient enough to be able to say, look, this was, this this is what I needed. Uh, it may not always be what you want, uh, or at least from your interpretation, it may not be what you want, but it's clearly what you needed. And, you know, I, I lived uh, an extraordinary life until the 10th of um, June 2010. Uh, you know, I, I was considered one of the top five speakers in this country, the other four politicians. So I, I wasn't in necessarily the best of spaces, but but I, was, um, I hadn't climbed Mount Everest. I hadn't... Uh, um, done anything extraordinary other than an, a, a gift that I'd been given from somewhere to be able to stand up and make people laugh and, uh, and think and cry perhaps. Um, and, and that's a gift um, to be, most people uh, believe it's more than a gift. They believe it's some level of insanity because, because you know, they, they fear most public speaking. And, and I do that without any prompts, any notes and, uh, at the height of my speaking, when people used to say to my assistants, look, can I have a copy of his speech? They used to laugh because they said, well, he hasn't got one. And, um, well, what will, he, what will he talk about? Well, he doesn't know, but it'll be okay. You know, they, they, he hasn't yet had one in hundreds and hundreds of speeches where people were disappointed because he works intuitively and, you know, he, he knows the theme of your conference and everything's fine. It's, it's a bit like our meeting today. So... You know, as far as um, plans and um, rigid processes in life, um, I've, I've had to suddenly learn the lesson. So, so you thought you were a motivator. You thought you knew people. So you thought you could build relationships with the most extreme people. So cop this and let's put you into some of the most serious, um, violent places in the world, in, in Australia, prisons. And let's see how you go. <laughs> and, and, and let's close the door um, uh, that evening with you in a cell with a person that's clearly a million miles away from your personality trait or educational background who, who probably wants to hurt you and uh, most likely plans to. <laughs> and, and let's see whether you, you're capable at the end of that day of surviving. That's what I faced. <laughs> And um, we were friends in the morning. Yeah. But that wasn't how the day started. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's go back to the 10th of June and let's unpack. So you've given a little bit of a hint there that you've had some prison time, totally unexpected. So talk to us about the 10th of June. What was what what happened that totally changed your your life? Well, I, I was charged with uh, gaining a financial advantage by deception and gaining property by deception. Now, um, just, just for the people that are listening to this, the, the charge of gaining property by deception wasn't that I stole a TV set or a car. Uh, if someone writes a cheque and puts it into your bank account or gives it to you, uh, in law, that's considered property. If they make an electronic transfer, it's considered a financial uh, deposit. So it's treated differently. And the charges are different. But in total, I was charged with receiving money from people um, and that the charge was that I intended to deceive them. So there's, there's no criminal charge for um, you saying to me, look, Chris, I, you know, I've got a racehorse running tomorrow and, you know, the trainer tells us it's going to win and I put some money on and it loses. There's no... But if at the time when you gave me that advice, you, you knew that the horse was ill, that, that would be gaining a financial advantage by deception if, in fact, I gave you the money and you didn't put it on. So I was charged with that and there was no evidence as far as I could assess from the information available that I had intended to deceive anybody. I may have been foolish, impetuous, 
um, a moron, <laughs> lots of things. But but being foolish and deceptive and being a moron are fortuitously for many people watching this not a criminal offence because they'd have to put everybody away uh, to do this. So when the trial was run and, run and I gave evidence for, I think, eight or nine days, um, in the absence of any probative evidence under law that says that there was intention, um, when the jury um, went to consider their verdict, uh, there, there was no um, conversation between me and, my, and the legal team that there was any possibility that they could find me guilty. Mm. Um, and yet, so we walked, I walked into the court at three o'clock that afternoon after being told that they'd, after three days of deliberation, uh, and that was another indication, the longer they deliberate, it's generally a view that they're having difficulty coming to a, a unanimous verdict. Uh, and so the chances are that you know, the longer they take, they go, look, it was too hard. So I'd made uh, a, a, um, an arrangement to meet my wife for dinner that night and uh, we, she dropped me off at the court and she'd gone to work. And, and uh, at three o'clock in the afternoon, as I walked in to get the verdict, the, the, as the jurors came into the, their place in the court, none of them looked at me, which intuitively told me something was tragically wrong. And, uh, and then I was found guilty on 24 separate charges um, and I then had to go downstairs with the, um, with the appropriate authorities and I was asked for my shoelaces and my belt uh, and I asked why and they said because it's to avoid you committing suicide and uh, that, that all happened in the space of half an hour. Wow. Uh, and uh, that was um, um, scary and surreal. Mm. So life up until that point was, sounds like what you were saying before, it was, you know, you were doing all right. You were a, a well-known speaker here in Australia. You were, you know, doing the circuits. You're um, monetizing your gift. And then all of a sudden you find yourself at 3.30 in an, on an afternoon heading off to prison. Yes, there, there was no uh, go home and organise your affairs or uh, any of those sorts of things, which... Other people sometimes get their lawyers put forward a submission and say, look, needs a month to sort things out. And now I was put in a lift from the back of the court and, and uh, I went straight down into a cell and, uh, you know, they, uh, um, they wanted to make sure that I um, would be prevented from committing suicide, which indicated to me that people did <laughs> uh, face with um, such um, a challenge in life. Um, the thought had never occurred to me. Yeah. Uh, it, it was it was more, um, okay, so this is now something I didn't expect to face, but I can use it as an opportunity and I can cope with it. And I remember um, my wife, was Bianca, was a, allowed a phone call to me when I got to the, the remand centre. And... Um, well, I, no, I was allowed a phone call to her uh, for uh, one minute, I think it was, and I rang her and she said, she was in tears and she said, how are you? And my response was, I'm fine. <laughs> and I started laughing at what I just said because <laughs> I was clearly not fine, you know, but, but I, I didn't have a mechanism to say, look, I'm petrified um, because to me to acknowledge that would have mean, would have meant defeat. Now, that could be insane, but that's, that's how it was to me. Yeah. So, so talk to us about that, 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 that sudden change because all of us at some point in our life, I shouldn't say all of us, most of us have these sudden change, the unexpected. So you're sitting there thinking, I'm going out with, to dinner with my wife tonight, yet now I find myself in a remand centre, and you touched on this earlier, in a cell with somebody who is from a completely different walk of life, um, probably doesn't speak your language, so to speak, um, on a different wavelength of just being and existence. So talk us through the, you know, the stages of, of what this was doing. How were you feeling internally around this and what were some of the initial coping mechanisms that you did just in those first few days? Well, um, as I was locked into this 
remand centre cell, which which locks the door at four o'clock. So you share a cell, unless you're very fortunate and somebody hasn't been put with you. And I went into a cell with uh, where there was a, um, a an Aboriginal gentleman who was who was clearly uh, um, not well. Um, he, he he appeared to me to be uh, off his face, if I can use that term. Um, and um, it was either alcohol or drugs or a combination of the two, and he was he was clearly um, aggressive and, and anxious. Now I'd never found myself in that situation. I I'd, I'd never taken drugs. I, I I would have an odd glass of wine with a meal. I, I was I, I never smoked, and um, my ability to communicate with such a person had no previous point of reference. You know, I hadn't been to any educational programs how you do this. And uh, and yet I'd spend most of my life as a public speaker talking about the relationship is more important than the sale and, and build, building trust and, and, um, and empathy. And, and, and I rated my communication skills as extraordinary, as, as a self-analysis. Uh, and people in my audiences had often given me standing ovations and acknowledged that I had this unique gift. But how was I going to then um, demonstrate this gift in this most, what to me was extreme condition? Where could I even start the conversation? If or should I? Uh, should I sleep with one eye open on the basis that it was I was clearly at risk of violence and, and um, sexual violence and those sorts of things, which were made obvious to me in the conversation that I didn't precipitate, but that my new self cellmate had had told me, um, and so you know that that required a great deal of um, perhaps something in my mind said. So this is your great opportunity. Now most people probably wouldn't get there, but I did, you know, and uh, and I and I said so. You think you're good at this, and, and you think that you've got an ability to to build a relationship with strangers, and you've talked about it. You know, you've got up on stage like you're a genius about all of this stuff. Well, the world has suddenly said, "Well, here you go, <laughs> do this. <laughs> See if you can do what you say you've been telling people." Because, as you no doubt know, there's a lot of people that, to use the the phrase, can talk the talk, but the, the walking bit's a bit of a problem. So suddenly I had uh, I had to walk this in a in a cell that was probably about six feet at one end and 12 feet to the other. So so that was it. And there were two bunks, a toilet, a shower and, and us. And um, I thought the best thing I could do was get to know him. And I wanted to know about him. And I started to ask him questions about his life. And... Uh, and uh, he started to break down and, 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 and tell me about his life experiences. And, you know, a, a relationship I knew can't happen without people disclosing. We, 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 we have a need, you know, if, if, if you and I are to become close friends, th there will be things about my life that, that I will have to invite you into, no matter how difficult they are, Georgia, you know, that you can't build a sustainable relationship on, on an artificial platform you know you can you can have an acquaintance on that level but relationship so there was no tv well the t there was tv there but it had been broken because someone had tried to light a cigarette from it and set fire to it so it wasn't working um and uh, so i wasn't about to go to sleep at four o'clock in the afternoon and so i i wanted to get to know him i genuinely wanted to get to know him and um and, and at, at that point, he wanted to get to know me at a certain point after that. And by the end of the end of the, in the morning, we, we, we were brothers. And um, we are to this day. You know, I, I saw him on the street. He'd come up and, and give me a hug. So I, I, um, I took it as, well, let's see whether you really have the right to claim that you, you have some unique ability to do this. And, that's how I cope for the rest of my seven and a half years in prison. Yeah. Yeah. And built remarkable relationships with um, 
extraordinary people. Uh, the moment you got to the point, um, uh, Georgia, that everybody was was equal, it didn't matter what you'd done. The fact that you were in a prison together and judgment was eliminated. Um, it's amazing how you could forge um, remarkable relationships. Mm. And I value those relationships. I love, I love what you say there about your... So a lot of people... Okay, so we see prisoners as a negative and I don't want to end up there and I'm sure you'll probably say I don't wish it upon anyone. But one of the things that you just said then was it was free of judgment. And that is a really interesting concept to think to relate to to prison because, you know, I'm, I'm picturing now when you said that, that, well, we've taken away our property so we can't judge each other on our material possessions. We've taken away... Um, the clothes that we wear, we're probably all wearing the same sort of clothes. We can't judge you on that. The only thing we can, um, that holds us, only thing that we can form an opinion on is your story of your life. And then we're all here for a certain reason. So the judgment disappears. How can we create that in life? Like that's quite a powerful environment if it really is lacking of judgment. Like I'd love that if I could just, you know, walk down the street and not be judged or whatever it might be or do a podcast and not be judged or um so is do you think there's a way we can recreate this in society what would what would it take for us to take away some of that judging well um there are several things i learned that i think are outstanding within incarceration um connected to no judgment was the, the, the importance to tell the truth. And when you're not being judged, you can tell the truth because you're not going to be judged on it. So, you know, there are some prison regulations that, you know, nobody um, um, snitches on anybody. <laughs> so, you know, you can sit down and have a conversation and, and your cellmate can say, look, I'm actually here for drug trafficking, but I've actually done this, this and this that they haven't got me on. And, and, and it's the truth. Now, when you live with people in a cottage and towards the end of my prison sentence, they, they endeavour to rehabilitate you by putting you into a, a unit where there's six or eight of you and the door is locked at, at night and then the six of you live in a house. And there's, a, again, an un, um, unwritten law that's enforced that everybody that's put together to live together needs to tell each other the truth, the absolute truth, and no one will judge it regardless. So sometimes some of those offences that people talk about over dinner, uh, you, you, might, you might say, well, look, they're, 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 they've got a violent personality. But within this space, you accept that on the basis that in accepting it, it won't be perpetrated on you. You, you just allow that person to be where you show a level of compassion or not compassion but acceptance that, that that that's okay and sometimes some of those most violent people are in fact the most frightened people in, in, within the prison system it's their way of sort of pretending they're tough and, you know the guys in the gym with the biggest muscles are the easiest to knock over <laughs> as a because they've got this facade of muscle and tattoos and no teeth and they're not really, they're just little kids, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the truth became the, a, a very important thing that was introduced to me in prison because in the corporate world that I lived in, um, the, the, the truth was fiction presented as a possibility of being fact. And in the, in the prison system, if somebody wants you to, wants a can of Coke and, they, and you're in the canteen queue and, and they come up and say, look, can you buy me a can of Coke? It's fine. But if they say to you, look, can you buy me a can of Coke and I'll replace it tomorrow because I'm getting some money into my account and they don't, everybody in the prison knows they've lied. And it, it mattered not that it was the most smallest thing. The issue that a prisoner has is what else have they lied to me about? And they get hurt. You know, there, there are consequences, serious consequences. Um, and, uh, and in a small space, 
there is nowhere to hide. In a small space, there's there's nowhere to say, look, I meant to ring you yesterday, but I was having lunch with my brother-in-law. Dog got ill, and you know, and uh, car broke down. And God, I've got a lot on my plate at the moment because the moment you say that, somebody, no, I saw you sitting in the sun for four hours yesterday. You weren't really busy, and and now we have an issue. You know, what? Why are you lying to me? So I think in a confined space, the truth becomes an extraordinary component that um, in the world that we often live in doesn't get that type of scrutiny, put mm. it that way. Yeah. yeah. So we could, we could potentially start to create some of these containers for our own lives to let the truth out so that then we build closer relationships and more trusting relationships. And it's interesting you say that. I've just come back for some training in the US with the Flow Genome Project and one of the things they had us do was um, they put us into groups of eight and every night around the dinner table, they would give us topics to talk about and there were really pertinent questions and we had to just lay it all out mm. on the table. So the topics were, you know, death over dinner. So we talk about death Then there was God over dinner, talking about God. Then there was drugs over dinner. We talk about drugs and there was sex over dinner and we talk about sex. So all these things that sometimes you wouldn't talk about, we was there was this container of trust um, built with the process, but you had that forced upon you without, you know, somebody saying, hey, go and talk about this. It's Everyone's just trusting each other, mm. which is really quite fascinating. I wasn't expecting to hear that um, from your experience in prison. I'm sure that it wasn't all roses as well, but um, uh, that's really interesting that there's been, well, actually, I'm not going to say interesting. It's great that you can see the gift in the situation and actually see the bigger picture um, of what's actually occurring. Well, in my, in my present um, freedom from, from incarceration, um, when we meet people for the first time and it, it happens endlessly, at a party or a function, and and the question is innocently asked of me, you know, and uh, so Chris, what do you do? And so well, I haven't been doing much for the last seven and a half years, and they and and they say, well, well, are you retired? I said, no, I've been in prison. And uh, there's this sudden sort of shake shake of the head, which says, well, look, but you're lying to me because you haven't got any tattoos that I can see, and your, your teeth seem all in place, and. Uh, you haven't, you know, you haven't tried to kill people at the dinner table yet, so you can't. You're lying to me. So no, no, I've been to prison, and the moment you declare in the honest truth that you've accepted that a jury of twelve people um, have, as best they can, assessed the evidence put forward and decided that you're you're guilty of that offence, that 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 you are. In, in, in the that, that's it. We, we've got a situation today of a very senior <laughs> cleric in the Vatican who's been found guilty. Now there may be appeal processes as are with mine and all the rest of it, but but they 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 can't be put into perspective. You know the the, the position right now is that you've been convicted of an of an offence. Accepting that in the knowledge that people won't judge me is something I learnt in prison. And I found in the in the world that you now live in, the moment I go to see a prospective client that may want me to speak about resilience or whatever, um, it's important that 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 the declaration of that experience is is provided. If they judge it, it's best we not proceed, you know. And they're entitled to judge it. I'm not saying they're not entitled to, but from my level of integrity that I've been put into my life from going to prison. I only want to be around people that are prepared to go, okay, I, I respect and value the fact that you've declared this. Hmm. Because what about all the other people that they've met who may have committed crimes but have not been convicted? And that's a secret, you know, like, yeah. you know because I, I can't tell you that I'm actually an alcoholic and I'm an adulterer and all the rest of it. You know? and, and I used to remember in my early days as a speaker, you'd go to a company and they'd say, oh, Chris, we've got a fair few religious people in our audience, you know, and uh, so could you sort of modify your your anecdotal evidence to sort of um, consider their position? And I used to often say to these people, so how many pedophiles have you got, you know, how many cross-dressers, and can you give me the full profile of the whole audience? So uh, perhaps I'll get up and say, in, in conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, because I can't open my mouth at that stage because I'm going to 
somehow affect somebody, you know, because I can't please the lot, you know, it's just an impossibility. But they used to go out of their way to say, look, can you just not say anything that might affect those people. Well, there's a whole, there's 200 people here or 1,000 people, you know, or 10,000 people, some of the bigger audiences. And and yet in the world that I went into, um, you could say whatever you had to say if it was the truth and no one judged. Mm. They might not have enjoyed it, but no one judged as yeah. best as I can, as best as I can tell you. And I think that was an extraordinary lesson. And I think there's a lesson in that for us as well because we tend to, and I, I can be guilty of this sometimes, tend to um, change what I'm saying according to the audience instead of thinking about, well, and that's, you know, maybe to not offend somebody, but at the end of the day, you just never know what you could say that could offend anyone. And as you said, the audience could have um, somebody in there that has committed a crime, somebody who's done something they're really feeling shameful for and, we don't know a lot of this and you've got an, an audience or a group of people or it could be the person one-on-one conversation with somebody. I, I think you're really sharing here that it's really important to, first of all, speak the truth, but the most important thing is not worry about being judged. Mm. And that, how, do you, how's, how did you build up that resilience of going, you know what, I'm going to go back out in the world now and I'm going to come across people and they're going to ask me what I've been doing and I'm going to tell them I've been in prison and this is why I've been in prison and I'm not going to really worry about being judged. How, how do you get to that space? Well, there were several um, experiences that helped me get there. Um, when I first went to prison, I had this belief that everybody that was involved in a violent or a drug-related crime were um, pretty average people. And uh, and that's, I'm trying to be sensitive in my language um, for obvious reasons. I don't offend anybody. <laughs> but, 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 you know, they, they, were, they were oxygen thieves, all those sorts of things. And then I found out in talking to them that, that they thought I was. So... It's quite remarkable that, that the, the prisoners that are in, into violent crime, drug-related crime, and, you know, the, the typical stuff that gets publicised, uh, their families believe that the white-collar offenders, people like me that have, that have uh, allegedly lost money from people and, you know, had bankers and all that. it's going to be full of prison shortly with bankers, um, that, 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 that they are... Um, um, they are the scum. So, so if you if you if you were a, a, a murderer that used a chainsaw to cut up your next door neighbour because he offended you one day about a tree, um, when your family came to visit you, that they looked at me sitting at the next table as a low life, <laughs> because in their perspective, people that that took the risk of other people's money was an absolute low animal. Okay? My family <laughs> used to say to me, "Who's sitting next to you?" So, well. That's the guy you probably read about that got a chainsaw and cut people up into a thousand pieces because they offended his sense of fairness. And they'd say, God. And I, and I said, look, I, sh- I did share a cell with him. He's a really nice bloke. <laughs> and, and you had this massive difference between how in different social sectors we believe that certain crimes are far um, more um, unsavoury and unpalatable and so it it, it's, it was just sitting back and saying yeah look I, I can see how his family are looking at me like I'm an absolute miserable lover and I don't think I am <laughs> and my family don't think I am they've come to visit me you know and my friends and fortunately I had lots of lots of people that um, came to visit me and you know if you want to find out Georgia uh, who your friends are go to prison because there, there was a time in the world I could have held my birthday at the MCG and we wouldn't have standing room. And now I can hold it in the telephone box. Mm-hmm. And But the, those that will be there, I can call friends, you know. So it, it, there were extraordinary lessons you learn in that sort of situation. That's not making people right or wrong or anything else. That's just saying that's what I saw. That's what I experienced, you know, that uh, that that even... Should my matter go to the High Court, which is presently being considered for an appeal based on the fact that I 
I was denied a fair trial. That's my assertion. Um, and let's hope for me that, that, that I'm acquitted of, of that matter. There will still be perhaps more like 50% of the market that believe I'm guilty. You know, uh, Lindy Chamberlain was of that, you know, that, that, that regardless of the fact that she was acquitted of the crime, there are people with opinions and they can have them. But we, I didn't find that in, in prison. I, I found that only in prison if you lied about what had happened. Not what happened, but if you lied about it. If you told the truth, you were, you were safe. You could walk around without having to look over your shoulder. Yeah, so and now that you're out, this is your fear of judgment has really dissipated um, because you've learnt now, you've been able to tell the truth to what we would potentially think of the most unsavoury people and nothing's happened, right? So you've, because you've told the truth. So now you're back in society and you're around the people that are going to probably judge us the most and uh, you've built this resilience because you've been telling the truth in prison um, and not being judged. So if you're going to get judged now, well, you know, it probably feels like I don't care. But the moment I, um, I tell the truth um, and declare, you know, um, a relationship can commence. Mm. Uh, before that, it's on very thin ice because what if this was dis dis disclosed later? Because the issue then is, well, you know, if I had a known, I, it would have been fine. But why did you lie to me? So the principle still exists in the world that you and I now live in. It was just enforced very clearly in prison because it was such a small space. Mm. You know, even at the biggest prison, it might have been 500 metres by 500 metres or, 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 or a 1,000 metres square. It, it's... it's um, it's not even Chadston. <laughs> like it's it's a quarter of it. You know, it's it's a quarter of a shopping centre that that you all got to live in, and there's a thousand people. You know, it's uh, it's remarkably um, um, confronting, and yet um, the learning in there is is large if you're prepared to go and learn. Now, there are many many prisons that go back monthly you know, and uh, and their families are there and all that it, them it's a social space but to me i had no point of reference i'd, I'd never met anybody that had been to prison i had my family but no connection um it was all uh, like a kid in a scary toy shop yeah so one of the things we had a little sort of chat about before we hit record on this podcast and this i think this is something that may even reflect back on what you're talking about, how the, the, the people in prison actually really, in a way, detest the white-collar workers and the, the financial schemes or whatever it is. And we, we were talking a little bit very briefly around greed. And I'd really love to go down that rabbit hole with you around what are some of the things that you've noticed because... and. What are your thoughts on greed? Because I've, I've got an understanding of a little bit of the story that led up to you getting into the situation that you are um, and you can share any of that that you need to. But what are your thoughts around the, I guess, the, the societal view of materialism and money and, you know, what, what's that doing to us as a society? So what are your thoughts? Okay. Long-winded question. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, wonderful question. And uh, we probably don't have enough time. But, but, <laughs> but, but this is my view. Um, greed uh, has been now talked about in the, the Royal Commission into the Financial Service and the banking industry as the, 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 the precursor to what occurred. The issue of, of greed is, is a disease, in my opinion now. And it's a disease that I had and it's a disease I still have. Uh, but but for which I can seek treatment. <laughs> now, when you get to the stage where you've you've got to change your late model Mercedes Benz for the replacement Mercedes Benz, and you uh, um, uh, drive thirty kilometres a day, you've now got greed turning into a level of insanity on on the basis that you, somehow your life is going to be so much better and so much more enjoyable. And I can remember many, many times when I was in that space where I would take delivery of a new vehicle and when I signed the lease agreements, um, 
I was more interested to know where to sign than what the clauses in the contract were. So, so the greed meant getting my backside into that vehicle and, and putting the roof down. Was 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 going to so affect my life in a positive sense that that the financial responsibility, the ability to pay for the, all of this stuff, uh, had had been had been taken away from me. So it, it's a disease. It's it's a it's an addiction, and we're all part of it. And uh, to this day, I'm still part of it uh, because when I go shopping, I try to decide whether that brand of shirt is going to be better for me to have and 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 tv and advertising does all of that so so greed is a is a a disease and we all have it and with it of course comes the financial responsibilities so i've i've made a note in my um i've made a note about my life and my history and call it a manuscript or whatever that that one day may may be of interest to people that the only people in the world that live within their means are people with no means at all all of us are somewhere close to the other end <laughs> at different levels. And unless, you're, unless you have the mindset of a, and I'm using um, a, um, a name that's known to, to the, President of the United, present President of the United States, and unless you know that, that having enormous debt is fine, in other words, if, if you owe the bank a million dollars, it's your problem. And if you owe the bank 500 million, it's their problem. And you can go to bed at night knowing that while they've got the problem, you're fine. <laughs> you know, you don't have to worry about answering a phone call or checking the complaint that you haven't paid your overdraft on time. If you can get to that other end where you're living a completely delusional life based on debt, um, which most people can't get to because most people are... are Trained on the belief that if you, if your credit card's due and you don't pay it, you're really miserable, low life, irresponsible. Your parents will be shocked. Grandparents are turning around in the grave. What have we done to cause Georgia to be this sort of person? Uh, and and we can't make that. We can't rationalise that 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 movement. So we are unfortunately in, in the global space all. Um, highly involved in this game um, of, of financial greed. And, um, and, and I, I'm very concerned that uh, sometime in, in somebody's lifetime that that whole issue will um, have to be reviewed. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it won't be a global financial crisis. It, it will be catastrophic if because it's presently completely artificial you know it's it's a it's a very very um concerning area and it'll be, have to be resolved one way or the other and so, that's what caused me to get to where i got to where i got when i got involved with the banks in the world and so on yeah so you mentioned that you know this is a, a disease and majority of us have this disease always striving for more and money seems to be the guiding force now money there's, there's something really interesting about money money um i've got a mentor my mentor is bob proctor and one of the things that he he says i've met, is that, I've met bob yeah so have i <laughs> so one of the one of the things that he um he says and i love this and it actually came up on a topic on social media yesterday someone was talking about money and i said you know there are people out there that use people and love money. But if you really want to get along in life, you've got to love people and use money. And there, it's, a, it's a fine line, I think, between that. So the greed is I love money so much that I'm going to do whatever I can to get there. and I'm going to use people to, to get that, that money. Or we could be on the other side of that and we could be saying to ourselves, well, I really love people and I'm going to use money to help make the world a better place, um, help my family, my life and everything to be, you know, something that gives me options and maybe a sense of freedom. So money in itself, I don't think is a bad thing. It's what we're using and the type of disease and how far gone we are with the disease and how caught up we get in that. So you mentioned before that you have, you admitted, I have this disease, this disease of greed or I had it. And you said, but I know there's a way out of it. What is that? Okay. What's well, the cure? <laughs> well, um, 
if I had that cure, I, I wouldn't have a problem with greed. I'd be the, the, the richest man in the world. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I don't because... It's funny no... that. You just give it away for free. You'd open source the cure. You wouldn't sell it because then no longer you'd have greed. So talk to us about... I, I, I don't think it's possible to say that anything that I acquired or learnt during my journey in life was something that I've got um, ownership of. Um, the 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 world the world has this information, and uh, and sharing it with people comes from an altruistic viewpoint rather than a selfish viewpoint. And the moment you try to put a price on um, assisting people move through the challenges that they face in life, um, because that includes money, then the 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 reality comes where everything has a a, a price on, and and a profit, a financial profit. Um, the opportunity to, to, for me to run a seminar, a global seminar, where the audience decide whether it's any good and then make a contribution on whatever they believe they can afford would be extraordinarily honourable to do. I suspect that if I did that, there'd be many people that wouldn't attend because the responsibility would be for them to be honourable, whereas to pay $99 to turn up, they'd be happier with. And if I said, no, it's free. But if you thought this really made a difference to your life, you determine the value of it. The, the issue of honour shifts from the, from the seller to the buyer, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So we, 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 we're going through um, a change in understanding that, that money in its original state from the, all the research that I've done was a vehicle of exchange. In, in the absence of finding, if, if, you, if you wanted milk coffee and you were a coffee grower and I had a cow, we have an exchange. And if we both like milk coffee, it's a wonderful exchange. Currency was created or, or exchange was created to allow people that didn't know each other to be able to take Matabili gumbo beads or whatever and exchange it with someone that didn't have a need for your product and, and they could transfer it. The issue now is that the currency itself, the money itself, has become a, a product in itself. Mm. And therefore, money is being made from money. It was never designed that way. It's, it's, it's now become a commodity in itself. And in the banking systems, when you can take a deposit of $1 from a person and lend that $1 to 10 other people legally, that's obscene and that's great. And if one of those people you lend it to happens to be a subsidiary of the bank who can who is an investment company, if they can multiply that out 30 times, you've now only got $1 sitting against a multiple of debt with nothing of substance behind it. So the for people to get their heads around that would, is um, frightening mm -hmm. because you can't get away from the fact that you've got to make a living I've got to make a living, there's at least to be paid and all the rest of it. But these are challenges that are going to, um, people are going to face. But those that aren't facing it are just swimming along in the tide <laughs> because, you know, it's fine. It's the bloke out there that drowned yesterday. You know, he, he's, he's lost his house and I'll be okay and I'll buy his house when he can't sell it and I'll make a profit. When in actual fact, your house was designed to be your home, not your asset. Yeah, it's where we live. You know, as, as cave people, it would have been my cave. Yeah. And and if someone wanted my cave, they had to come and kill me. And then that was fine. I went found another And you're cave. not condoning if you want someone's house to go and kill them now, are you? No, no, I'm not. Not not in the least. Not in the least bit. I'm. I I, I have a belief that I'm trying to help them be less attached to the house, so they come and live in my place. I yeah. can't live there. You know, we can have a holiday home. In. Timeshare should not be a financial transaction. I love, I love what you said that one of the things you said is, you know, just removing the attachment to those material things. And there's, there's so many different things we can, we can talk about. And you're right, you know, talking about greed and money can be, a, you know, how much, how much time do you have really? Mm -hmm. um, but there's a couple of things there. One is, yes, the, the non-attachment to these material possessions. So many people get so attached to just odd things, whether it be a house, a car, a even a person or whatever it might be. So we get attachment. But another thing that you mentioned there, which I really loved is the, it's, it's, it's like a, a cure for greed is 
let me, if I'm doing something, let me run an event, let me offer my services, but have the people choose what its value is to them to pay for it. Now, I've done that. I do that. One of my programs, I allow people to choose what they want to pay. And it's really interesting to see everyone's different values come in. And I don't take it personally. It's just about what what you want to pay is that's fine for you. I just want to get this message out and you can value it. Um, but I've had people go, oh, I don't know what to pay. Mm. I don't know because you haven't, I'm so used to you telling me, not you, but society telling me what something's worth. But now you're asking me to be honorable. I'm going to be using your services. And now you're telling me you choose. Mm. Yeah, I go, yeah, you choose. And mm. I won't be offended. This is what value you're going to get out of it. And therefore um, it's, it's really hard to budget a business when you do that, but it is, it's actually really quite rewarding because you have people now taking ownership for, well, in my space, personal development. And um, one of my, one of my bugbears and something I'm trying to move through, and maybe you've given me a bit of an answer here is how can I make this information that I have and these teachings that I have more uh, available to those people who need it the most. And that's a way of doing it just to, Pay what you pay what you think it's worth. Yeah, and and there are there are people that can that can contribute to, to you and to me if they want to use our services with something far greater than money, and and that is trust and um, acknowledgement and a thank you um, and a referral and and all all of those things that multiply our our capacity into the world because of the work that you're doing. If if one of one of your uh, clients is 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 transformed uh, how much more valuable is it to you for your own heart that that transformation is precipitated into the market somehow that that gift continues you know because oh. it's that change that makes a difference to all of us yeah absolutely and that's the that's the bigger picture and i think if um, our listeners the people that are listening can think about so much from this podcast but just this one thing around what am, I, what am I giving to the world and what am I making a difference through? And you'll find that in every walk of life, every career, there is an opportunity to, to be of service. And when we are of service, the things that we need turn up for us. And a lot of the time, I think this greed stems from thinking we need money when money is great. It's a great tool. And yes, it was designed as a, 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 an avenue of exchange, but life is rich in so many other ways. There's a richness in the people in your life. There's a richness in the environment that you live in. There's a richness in your ability to breathe fresh air. There's an, you know, in Australia here, we've got global listeners, but for those in Australia, we can turn on the tap and we've got a richness in fresh water delivered to us. And I'm thinking people pay for bottles of water. What the heck? It's better coming from your tap. It's free. Um, <laughs> So there's so much richness around. We forget about this opulence that life delivers. And I think that's uh, once we start to really understand that, we may start to move away from this greed and chasing the dollar. I have a client at the moment and amazing guy doing some amazing work in the men's space. And he realized that last year, I think it was, and he shared this, he said last year he was chasing the money investing in property and doing everything. But when he realized when he could be of service, not only did he change, but the, he still was making money, but the money had a different feel to it. And he was no longer chasing the dollars. He was helping people and being of service and he was getting uh, remuneration or getting a reward for that. Mm. So yeah, there's a fine line. We've got to find that, I think. So. Well, I, I, I think that when you, when you replace the religion of, goodwill and altruism and care when you when you stop realizing that people are more interested in how much you care than how much you know and all the training in the you know in the in the corporate world i'm, I'm talking about in the in the business units not people like yourself that do an extraordinary job but to others where that the training is all product knowledge um and no training is given towards understanding people, feelings, caring, you know, understanding, all of that, that that we 
we are being dragged down the, the, the concept of, of, of distant communications, impersonal connections, where suddenly the profit becomes greater than, than any relationship. And I, I'll, I'll leave you this thought on this, this point. I, I used to, as a, when I was consulting, and, I, and when I get back into consulting, which I am now, I, I will say the same thing to my clients. When they tell me that, that they know a lot about their clients, I applaud them. And then I ask them an important question, and what does your client know about you? Because until you can show me, until I can meet with your client, who has traded with you for 10 years, and he can tell me that your sister-in-law um, is, is going through a marriage breakup at the moment that has been concerning to you, you have got a very superficial connection. You may have a business card that tells me his golf handicap and the name of his kids and the school they go to and that he plays tennis, but it is valueless. It's only when that, that the relationship is built to that level that they can, they can tell me that, that George has been in the States last week and, by the way, she was exhausted when she landed. And, and you know, I, I, I remember getting a text from her and I could tell by those text words that she was, she was confronted by something. You know, I felt for her. The moment they can tell me that, I know you've got a relationship that's unbeatable. Uh, until then, uh, in the absence of everything else, people will buy on price. Yeah. And it's, it's, that's, that's the issue. So if you don't put in the, the genuine kid, and you can't, you can't train this, I don't think, Georgia. I think it's something that you, that you have innate in every, you know, it's there, that, 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 um, that, that, I, that I'm more interested in, the success of your um, contribution to your clients than what this podcast can do for me. It's only when that happens. It's only when the President Kennedy's statement of ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for the country. Until salespeople turn up at a client's office, more interested in helping them than winning the sales competition and the incentive and the bonus. It's only when that happens that culture changes. That this that the culture goes from what can I take to what can I give, and uh, you know we've had the Royal Commission talk about the culture of greed, and and, and they're going to flick their fingers, and banks are going to change the culture, and it's going to be the client being first. Well, it's a huge shift because it's not a bank; it's thirty-five thousand people that have grown up with a whole different mindset. You know, um, and uh, you know, it's a shame we don't have more time to talk about the examples of this. But I think that's that's the core thing that I'd like to keep talking about. <laughs> yeah, and I just love the passion oozes from you, and you really hit the nail on the head there, Chris, when you mentioned. You know, if you a lot of people can tell you about their clients, absolutely, but very few as you're saying, if you pick up the phone and ring the client and say, tell me about Georgia, there are very few clients that can do that for their, the people they're working with. So that takes us back. It's almost full circle. It takes us back to that trust. I'll share my story with my clients, not out of fear of being judged, but out of building that connection. So you've had this amazing experience in, in prison where you had to, you shared the truth and you built relationships with people that you probably would never have built with if you're outside of the, the prison landscape. And yep. I just think that's gold in what you've just said. And I think that's a really great place to, I was going to ask you, do you have any advice for our listeners? But it sounds like that was gold. But is there anything else, any, anything else to add on top of that around your experience or anything you want to leave people with based on what's happened in your life? Okay, well, from what's happened in my life, I, I went and wrote what I, what I think are the, the core principles that, that, that if your relationships are breaking down, if you go back to these core principles, I think you can always track where it went off the rails. And, and that's an important part because if you don't have this formula to follow, you follow your, your emotion will take you down wrong, wrong track. So I, I've written a, a document called The 12 Immutable Laws of Relationship-Based Selling. And I could take the word selling out and replace communicating because that's the immutable laws, you know. Tell me like it actually is. Criticise constructively. Tell me what's going wrong and what's going right. I mean, all of these things are the truth, you know, but 
but but provide it. Uh, give me something better than you're given anybody else. You know? um, give me access to you when it, when it's not available. You know all of these sorts of things. Um, and uh, and if you if you go back and um, read those and and at, at if if it's appropriate for your listeners to have the linkage that I can provide that. But but it 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 was important for me to go back and say so. You know what are these key. Um, performance indicators uh, that, that aren't related to gaining market share, but but allowing me the, the capability to invite people into my life and therefore be invited into theirs, you know, that, that situation. Um, and, and I think that if, if, if I could make a contribution to your wonderful audience that these, these are people like... Um, Ten steps to happiness or something. When actually, there's probably just one. Now be happy and everything. <laughs> but, but people like, like, um, like, like doing that. And, and just to just to finish on a humorous note, I I did the motivational work with the Sri Lankan cricket team uh, from about 1990, uh, 1989 to up up to when they won the World Cup. And uh, I can't take any credit for that at the World Cup. But I but I remember. Um, the manager, when he first met me, introducing me to the players and, and uh, with, with his Sri Lankan accent, which I won't put on, even though I was born in Sri Lanka, I can, I can speak like that easily. But he fundamentally said to the team, he said, boys, um, Mr. Kosh has come to help you, uh, but I don't know what he can do <laughs> because you're playing badly. And if you want to win, stop playing badly. <laughs> It's not complicated. You know? In fact, I have been telling you how badly you're playing. So I can't do any more. I'm reassuring you, you're bad. Stop. Just <laughs> stop it. Stop it. If you want to win, play well. It's Forget about motivation. Stop. <laughs> if, if there are people cheating on you, stop cheating on other people. It's liable to fix it. <laughs> it's a sort of simple, you know... Some simple core values, and, and and I'm fortunate that I can hear those things in in a lighthearted fashion, but in a very deep sense of understanding. And I can make people smile about that, yeah. um, and people learn by that. You know, so I hope absolutely. it's made a difference to people that are, that will watch this at some time in the future. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely certain, Chris, that the people get a lot of value from your experience and your wisdom. And um, we will make the link available to the 12 immutable laws. I think you said of selling, but it's more of, of a relationship-based selling. Relationship-based selling. So we'll make that available to our listeners because I think that's valuable to everyone because uh, we actually sell every day. We sell to our partners what we want to have for dinner. We, we're selling. It's influencing. So absolutely, we'll make that available. Now, is there any way people can get hold of you if they would like to... Um, have you come and talk in an event or talk to a group of people? What's the best way they can reach you? Well, well email's probably the, the easiest and uh, I've sent that to you, but do you want me to mention it now? It's, it's yeah, um, I'll actually, yeah, mention it now because those that are listening won't may not see the email in, in the text and I'll also put it in the show notes as well. So what's the email? Is, is Chris, C-H-R-I-S, at iSales.com. INS, so it's the International Sales Institute, abbreviated, yep. .com. Beautiful. All right, wonderful. We'll make that available for everyone. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute delight and pleasure with all of your insights and um, we went down some different rabbit holes that I've ever been down before with you in this wonderland. So thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate your time and uh, I wish you all the best as you uh, are integrating back into society but bringing this amazing uh, wisdom and influence and resilience so thank you so much it's a pleasure thank you okay so thank you for staying on and listening to that episode with chris um it's not often that i get to hear from people who have had an experience like he has where he's ended up um, spending some time in prison i think it was a total of seven years but what is remarkable about remarkable about this is his life was turned upside down at a very short notice and through it all, he remained positive and he had a really resilient mindset and an ability to focus on and find the good in the situation. He also had the ability to see the challenges and opportunity to grow. 
and an opportunity to strengthen and to prove to himself what who he was and what he could offer to the world. So we went across so many different places. Please, if you um, need to reach out to him, if you've got any questions, make sure that you do. He has a wealth of knowledge and I think there's a lot we can learn from his experience. Thank you so much for tuning in. And um, if you know of anyone that you would like me to have a chat to and go down the rabbit hole with, please drop me a line at podcast at bluechipminds.com and we will um, get in contact with anybody that you think would be a great attribute or an awesome story we can get out to the world. Thank you so much for listening in and um, stay curious. Today is turning into the most curious adventure I've ever had.